0: Good morning, Crossroads. Thank you. Hello. This isn't my usual crowd. I'm a nine o'clocker, and I'm old enough to still tuck in my shirts. (laughs) So sorry for the lack of hipness. So, a lot of what I think, when I think, when I think about Jesus, which is a lot, I never have the cross out of that image in my mind. There's an old hymn. And there's a verse that goes like this. I take thy cross. I take, how does it start? I take thy cross, O shadow, for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Hebrews five verse seven says this about Jesus. In the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud crying and tears. Do you picture him that way? He knew what was coming. That cross was coming. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to deliver him from death. Because and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And he wasn't delivered from death, was he? He was delivered out of it, not from it. Same goes for you and me. Hebrews 12 starts out, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, who's that crowd? Hebrews 11's full of those guys we call the Hall of Fame of Faith. That hall of fame was full of adulterers, liars, swindlers, cheats, harlots. And then there's a bunch of no names at the end of the chapter. Those who died by the sword, by stoning, being sawn in two, like Isaiah. Isaiah. lived in holes in the ground, caves. What does scripture say about them? People this world was not worthy of. That's your cloud. That's your cloud of witnesses. I think of Stephen when he was stoned, when he was dying, asking God to forgive those who were stoning him And he looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The only time in the New Testament after his resurrection where Jesus is standing. And I can see him with that cloud cheering him on, right? Cheering him on. And Stephen saw him. How far away could he be? He wasn't eight billion miles away out there someplace. My personal opinion I think that cloud's right here. I think it's arm's length away. You can think what you want. It gives me encouragement. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles And run with endurance the race set before us. The older you get, you're gonna find out that Christianity's a long haul, baby. It's a long haul, because the stinking enemy wants to mess you up, fill you with lies, fill you with shame. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. E. Stanley Jones, a great missionary to India, said we glance at men, but we must gaze at Christ. Who for the joy set before him did what? endured the cross what did he do next Despise the shame I carried around shame for decades of my life not weeks not days decades some of you here have a lot of shame because of something somebody said to you did to you, looked at you, and it may even be something despicable that you can't even talk about. And you're listening to that lie. You're no good. If you hear that voice, you're no good, I got news for you. That isn't you. Fight that thing. Fight that thing. Jesus took your shame on the cross, didn't he? what did he do with it? He despised it. This is your savior, your king, your master, your judge, your creator, your advocate, your friend that sticks closer than a brother, hanging naked on the cross in front of his mother, and his family, and his friends, and his enemies. And what did he do? He despised the shame. That is powerful, people. And I'm going to tell you what I preach these words of Hebrew to myself 15 times a day out loud. Somebody said something to me after the service You don't have to do that, it's done. Yep, it's done. Your enemy ain't done either yet. His day's coming. Don't buy the lie. His day is coming. Despise the shame and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, the great finisher of your faith. Next verse. Consider him. Who suffered such great hostility at the hands of sinners against himself? Here's grace that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Okay? You a fan, an enthusiastic admirer, or a follower? I'll leave you with that. There's going to be people up here right now that want to pray with you. Uh, don't be ashamed to come forward and give prayer. okay There's nothing new under the sun, folks. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think usually we kind of have a call for prayer at the end of our services, but we don't want you to, yeah, in light of what Dave is sharing this morning, how he carried shame for decades, we don't want you to be in that place and have to wait 45 minutes or an hour to come and pray with someone. So you'll see people sitting on the edges of the, the stage during any time during this worship set. If you want to come up and, and pray with someone, we invite you to do that. Otherwise, why don't you stand with us?
2: Used it before creation, eternity.
1: You know how it goes, let's sing together, I'll stand. These words won't be on the screen, but sing with me. I even offering. prayer this morning. Now we bring very little to the equation, but for some reason, day in, day out, your grace extends to us. Your mercies are made new to us this morning, Lord. Thank you. We come and just uh, approach your throne, yeah, with humility, but also with boldness, because you say, come. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, come. I'll show you who I am, so here we are, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you. You're not unknowable. We can can know what you're like, know who you are. We pray that by your word this morning and by your Holy Spirit that we can see you for who you are, Jesus, and let our lives just respond the only way that makes any sense of just surrender and trust. Thank you for your presence here. We don't always understand it, but we're shaped and molded by it. And so we just say, "Come and shape and mold us, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat.
3: Thank you. Thank you, band. Thank you, Will. How many years has it been, Will? You've been leading us more than 10? If you don't tell me more than 10, I'm gonna think more than 10. More than 10 years. That's a lot of songs. That's a lot of songs. That's a lot of prayer. I still remember the first one, though, I think. First song I need you, Jesus, to come to my rescue. I think that was the first song you ever sang. That's way
1: too high for me to sing,
3: too. I was there. I was standing right behind you. I remember. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. A lot of songs in between now and then, Will. But we appreciate you. You're a good man. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Crossroads if you're new. I hope you can find a place to settle in and pray. My name is Dan Mike, and um, I'd like to invite you at this time in the service to open up your hearts and your minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. As a community, we've been studying the book of the Bible that has been chronicled, uh, the life and the ministries of Jesus uh, by one of his closest companions and uh, his disciple, his name is John, and so we call this the Gospel according to John. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. If you would turn to chapter two, I've prepared some thoughts and challenges for you from chapter two. And the story that we are going to read today, there it, it, we we might just call it a, a miracle. But John does not use the word miracle very often, if at all, uh, to refer to this story or stories like this. He hand-selects six, arguably seven or maybe eight stories, but six of them, he calls them not miracle, but a sign. A sign, he says. What's a sign? A sign is something that points, that directs, that points us to do a certain direction, This is such a prevalent uh, literary feature in the Gospel of John that they decided, uh, scholars demarcated the first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 through, through 12, they call it the book of signs. Then, chapters 13 on, they call it the book of glory. For that is exactly what these signs are meant to point to and to reveal, the glory of Jesus now, glory can be described with a lot of different synonyms. There's a lot of different words. Uh, synonym, that's my favorite flavor. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> words that we can use. Honor and reverence and, and, and weight. All right? The weight, have you ever the weight of glory? Um, but the word that I want that just sort of stuck to my heart this week as I kind of interact with what is glory and what is the glory that's being revealed here is the word Significance. And, I, and I'd like for you to consider evaluating the place of significance that Christ has in your life, and I want to speak to that, and I want to reinforce that and increase the significance of Jesus in our hearts and our lives. And I think it's tempting to demote the significance of Jesus. I think our culture and our world and our lives can just get, become so significant and so important, and, and our worldview, it, it, it almost is... We're trained to think of ourselves as the, the center of our reality, the, the author and perfector of our fate, you know. And I am the center of this. I'm the most significant. What I want is the most significant, how I want to live. And all kinds of chaos and dysfunction can follow that pattern of life. And I, and I know that many of us know this. John wants to hand-select stories of Jesus's life to show us his significance. And in the end then we put our faith in him and have life in his name. That's what's at stake when we talk about how significant is Jesus. He's as significant as having life So he starts the story by using one of the most significant words in the Greek worldview to describe or to uh, entice the audience as to who he's talking about. In the the first verse of the the book, he uses the word logos, the central uh, source of all of creation. How significant is that? And then in verse 14, he says, This became flesh, and we saw the significance. We saw his glory. And then he goes on to introduce us to a character named uh, John the Baptist. And as the cultural climate is developing in the story, we see there's this massive expectation of a Messiah. And they're asking him all kinds of questions like, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy that's going to bring in the Messiah? And he does not want to detract whatsoever from the significance of the Messiah. So he likens himself to a sound Removing his physical, I mean, I am a voice. If you want to call me anything, call me a voice of one preparing people. Preparing hearts of this nation, preparing hearts of individuals to interact with the significant one who is coming, who is so significant that I baptize with water, but he'll baptize with God. He'll, bat- he'll drench and, and immerse you in the Holy Spirit. So significant that I am not able to even touch his feet and untie his sandal. And he did a good job at preaching the significance of Christ because when Jesus comes onto the stage, even John's disciples, as Rod showed us last week, they walk away from, from their rabbi. How, how significant is the relationship between a disciple and a rabbi? And they just turn. And they go and see and follow him. Some of them weren't disciples. They were just Tradesmen and they were fishermen and they were tax collectors, and, and, and the, as soon as Jesus walks up to them, they drop their net. How's that for a comparison of, of the weight that's coming uh, w- with Jesus when he interacts with these people? I like to imagine Levi taking a tax, like, you know, writing things down, and when he gets called, just drops the pen or a quill or whatever <laughs> they would use. I don't even know. And as uh, this significant one is uh, kind of, the story develops, we're all sitting here wondering what's gonna happen first? Who's gonna make the first move? How is this gonna become public? What's the first story uh, that we're gonna get introduced to? And it's here in chapter two. And so if you're able to and willing to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I'll read you from John chapter two. John chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, God said it is good twice on Tuesday, you know, in Genesis 1. So a lot of Jewish weddings happen on the double good day. Uh, but this would be a, a whole week feast here. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Mother Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples we were also invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, not realizing where it had come from, that would probably mortify him, though the servants knew where the water came from. Then he called the groom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This was the first of his signs that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. Amen. I don't know how this happened, but I just did a wedding last night and now I get to talk about the, the wedding story. I feel like I was just researching the role a little bit, you know, fortuitous. Okay, so I was, um, I was just there, and, I, and I'm a part of a lot of weddings. If you ever want to get married, just ask me. I, uh, I, it never gets old for me. I don't view this as something, I, I think it's such a privilege to be there, and I get a front row seat, and And maybe the reason why I'm so into it is that there really isn't anything else I can find that is like a wedding in our culture. Been to weddings in other cultures too, this is comparable. Every single element of a wedding has so much meaning and depth to it. I mean, yesterday they had strings cello, violin, thank you, Grace, wherever you are. They were playing the most beautiful songs. One was from Elvis Presley, one was Canon in D. They were just, and you could tell it was just so full of love. And, and as the groom brought his family in, and you could just see the generations that were standing here with them. And then the, the whole entourage, they all line up. And then they're saying stuff to each other that is just so meaningful. I cannot get enough of this and, and as many weddings as I've done, I, I don't think I've ever been to one or been a part of one where I didn't think of my own. Some, some of this story I kind of am, am wondering, like when Jesus is here, like the person that marriage is modeled after and is through and, and about and supposed to display is here and what's he thinking about and what's he feeling? and. Uh, and I think about, I'm saying that because I think about my own. When I was standing there outside, you know, where we got married and this woman standing here saying things to me that no one will ever say to me and I can't believe it. And just my parents were there and it was just so full of us and so full of depth and significance and meaning. I'm not surprised as I kind of think about this from the Jesus that I know chooses for his inaugural event to be at a place that carries so much weight and significance, at an event, a banquet, a feast, a wedding. If you were to be introduced to Jesus today or introduce someone, would you carry into the... uh, the scene that you introduce Jesus as, the amount of palpable meaning and significance that is in a wedding. Jesus wants to be associated with all of these things. That's why when the first communion was given at Passover, he, he did it at Passover, when, when they were celebrating and they were uh, remembering certain things, he chooses moments like this to make moves so that he's associated with them. So as I'm looking at this, you know, you start to think, okay, he's in Cana, he's near Nazareth. Uh, we don't really know necessarily what uh, who this wedding was. It, it seems like it's kind of an affluent family because they've got these massive jars or vessels here. Yeah, that's not normal. We have lots of people that are there because they're running out of stuff. They've got uh, servants and they've got uh, master of the banquet and they've got a rabbi and his disciples are all there. I mean, this is, uh, this is surely an event. So what I want to do is think about this event and this story from three different vantage points uh, for you to think about this week. And the first one is, is just Jesus at this event. The first thing we see is Mary talking to Jesus. She brings up a problem that she somehow figured out. I don't know how she figured out they don't have wine. First thing that comes to mind is she went to get some wine. And... They did not have any. Out. They're out of wine. She shows She goes to Jesus. The second thing that people will say is that it's Jesus' fault. He shouldn't have invited all these disciples. They were not invited. And they're just, you know, Mary marrying Pippin, you know, dancing around the Prancing Pony and doing all that. You know, I don't know. That seems a little out there to me. For whatever reason, they ran out of wine. And this is the scene. Does anybody ever kind of look at their interaction as somewhat enigmatic? I mean, as you... Uh, See this? It just is like why? Why why did he respond that way? She just brought up an issue, and it just it doesn't even seem logical. He says uh, no, and then does yes, right? Like it looks like he's like no, and then he just turns around and does it anyway. This has led some people to think that Jesus was trying to put Mary in her place uh, by saying, "Look, I'm not your genie. Okay, your wine genie. You can't just come up and tell me what you want, but." (laughs) I don't know. I feel like we're allowed to come to Jesus with anything, right? Like that, it seems like 101. Like you're allowed to just come to him and just bear your soul and say what it doesn't seem like that likely. And so then they think, well, they just want to, you know, the reason why they they don't say Mary, they say his mother is they want to show him that, you know, they're changing and he calls her woman. And uh, so it's this really complicated interaction that's meant to sort of put her in her place, but. I feel like that seems like a little bit of a stretch, and so just just to look at a little bit closer that language when he says, um, "What you know, what does this have to do with me?" If you were to do a wooden translation of this, you you could you could read it as, uh, "Your priority is not the same as my priority. You know, what you're valuing right now is not what I'm valuing. Uh, what what you're thinking is not what I'm thinking." Now, if you look at it like that, his next response continues to enforce or reinforce that when he says, My hour has not yet come. He gives Mary the answer, Not yet. I think all of these ideas are built on an assumption that we think Mary was asking Jesus to turn water into wine. We know that he can, like, as we know the story, and so we think she's coming up and saying, hey, do the water and the wine trick. <laughs> right? Uh, but when you think about it, the only time that like, somebody calls it would be like if they had an ailment or they needed to be healed from something and they come to Jesus and say, can you, can you help me with this and heal me? But when it comes to food stuff, nobody sees this coming. Nobody was like, okay, there's 5,000 of us out here. We have two loaves of bread. If I turn around, can you turn it into a million loaves of bread and feed all of us? That was my prayer. No, I mean, no one saw that coming. I doubt that Mary had it in her mind that he was able to to just do the, the water to wine thing. Especially with his response telling her not yet. She comes to Jesus and says, "Jesus, they're out of wine." And he says, "Not yet, Mary." She's got something in her mind that it, it, it's not like they're they're on different pages, they're on different pages, but it's not like they're in different books. He says, not yet, and so part of that would be like what I referenced earlier. In chapter one, there is a very big messianic expectation. What do we think they were expecting for the Messiah? Well, it wasn't that they were expecting, we know they were not expecting the Messiah the way he came with the, the crucifixion and all that. They were expecting things like a political leader who would come and lead a insurrection to Rome and you know, create a sovereign state again, uh, like King David. And I'd like you to glance at Isaiah 25. And this is a, another well-known um, messianic expectation attached to these verses. As, if you look into this, you'll see there's been a lot of writings and commentary and comments done on this uh, passage in regards to the Messiah. Me, uh, Isaiah 25 and verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty... Will prepare a feast of food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove the shame of all his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day they will say, Surely this is our God, or we waited for him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I mean, this passage is deep in the heart of people who are expecting what the Messiah is going to do. I mean, we kind of can identify with this with our like wedding banquet of the Lamb, you know, in Revelation 19. Uh, we get that. There will be some sort of victory. There will be some sort of uh, provision and banquet and feast that, that will be the persona. That will be the way he is. And so I think it, it seems like Mary is coming to Jesus. She knows he's the Messiah. <clears throat> she met the angel. She carried him. She knows who he is. And they're out of wine. And he's here. And maybe this is the time where the feast and the banquet and the, <laughs> the wedding supper is going to explode out of this moment. And he says to her, Not yet. Have you ever uh, brought a prayer or something before the Lord and he said, Not yet? Something that's just on your heart and something that you really want to figure out and, and get resolution for and something that you, you've just been praying for and you bring it to him and you just really feel like the response you get is not yet. It's really easy in these kind of moments to, uh, to look at God and, and be offended by this. To look at Jesus and say, your timing is not my timing. I, you, I'm better than you. I'm smart. You should know. This is, you owe me. I, I, plan, I pray for this. You should give this to me. And, and what is it? You're not powerful enough to do this or you don't love me. Which is, then we put him inside of that box. And then we just get all in our heads about this not yet kind of stuff. But look what Mary does. He says, not yet. And she says, I trust you. Do whatever it is that he tells you to do. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of great movements of God happen when people say, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm gonna trust you and move forwards. I'm thinking of uh, those, those priests who were meant to cross the Jordan River um, after they'd been in the wilderness all this time. And, and these are all people who did not cross through the Red Sea. Okay, this is a second generation, uh, born in the desert type people. And they, they walk up to that Jordan River and it does not part. But I trust you, and in humility, I'm going to walk forwards. And they wade into that water. And that's that flood stage water. What's going to happen? And it parts. They walk around those walls for seven days. I trust you. Think of that blind man that uh, came to Jesus. and he—if If he didn't trust Jesus and, and obey whatever it is that he said, he'd still just have mud in his eyes. I'd like to just, that's just so tangential of me to say all this, but just to say, like, when you come to the Lord and you get a not yet... I want to encourage you to say to him, okay, I trust you. Because then maybe you'll see what happens next. And maybe we won't get in the way. And maybe we won't just be frustrated, but we'll be able to follow him into something that he actually does want to do. Because even though they're on different pages, they're like I said, they're not on, uh, in a different book. Jesus does want to move into this. And um, I don't know if you caught this, but one of those verses in Isaiah 25, I think it was verse seven, specifically says this, and he will remove the shame. The real situation is not that just they're thirsty. If you run out of wine at a wedding in their day, this is a very shameful thing to happen to you. In honor-shame culture, this is not what you want. Maybe Mary's just sort of like got her eye on this couple because she knows what it's like to have your marriage start off with a scandal. Not only that, but it's sort of a litigious situation because people are are, uh, spending a week of their life traveling and you got to send them clothes and you got all kinds of hospitality culture stuff that you have to do. And if you don't, you could get sued for this. Jesus is here. This couple is about to experience shame. The logos of the universe is here. And this unnamed teenage couple needs him to step into their shame, and he says, I'm gonna remove the shame. I wanna add to the significance of who Jesus is for all of us and continue to say, he is someone who moves into shame And even though it might not have been their fault, or it might have been their fault, they made a miscalculation, a misjudgment, for whatever reason, he says, I'm not gonna let that continue to rest on you. I'm gonna take the responsibility for what happens next. We might not have the same social constraints on marriage and wine and all that stuff, but more and more in our day, we are becoming an honor-shame culture. Have you ever just said something and then just your stomach, (laughs) <laughs> or it just gets a pit because you just wish you could get it back and you can't. And you just feel like just the guilt and the shame of stuff that you've done or said. I'm, I'm right there with you. Add the digital world to it. Have you ever uh, written anything on the internet and, and, and now you can't get it back? Or have, have you ever seen or heard of a story of somebody who just was taking a video of them, and then that gets all changed around to make them look bad, and it's out there, and you can't figure it out. And uh, how many pictures from even young people are getting circulated that uh, can cause great deals of wounds and shame as they're used as some sort of uh, blackmail. Our culture doesn't need any help from the Christians to learn how to shame more. Our world needs a sign. They need somebody to stand there and say to them, we have someone uh, who is willing to deal with our shame. One who was pierced for our transgressions. One who was crushed for our iniquities. One who was laid upon him uh, our, payment, our penalty so that we could have peace. By his wounds, we are healed. One who, even though our sin has made us crimson, he will make as white as snow. Do you know that the the, the Jesus that Dave Vandervelde talked about a few minutes ago, who said, I will remove your shame. I will bear that for you. And the cool part is, is as you come to him with your vulnerability and with your shame and he removes that from you and he makes you clean, is then you become the sign, the, the living sign of his glory and significance in your life. And you are able to take that into every context that you go and confirm a different story to the people who are dealing with it in our lives. So Jesus removes the shame at this wedding. One angle that I'd like to move into also is an angle on the symbolism that could be found here. Uh, Like I'm thinking about some of the details that are put into this story and, and should we read into it or not? I know that there's different opinions on this and I think that that's valid Um, So I read somebody this week, they said, you know what, those six stone vessels used for purification of the Jews, those were just sort of around coincidentally, and I don't read into it. But then I'm thinking, were there not any like cups were there not any like non-sacred things around that he could have used, like a old like a wineskin that they just got done, you know, pouring up? Is there something else he could have done in the Elijah, you know, thing where they just fill each other's cups? Or could he just not have like done something? Of course he could have done something else. So I find it hard to believe that there's no intentionality here, especially if you flip it around. Let's say we all went to a wedding here in Grand Rapids and they ran out of wine and the baptism pool. <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden people are dipping their cups in, and all right, so you could say, don't read into it, I mean, you could say that, that, that there's, you know, but I'm sure that there will be many people in this city who would have something to say about this type of thing going on. Grand Rapids would not be silent on the issue, and not for Nothing. For us, we know, like there are things that we treat as sacred and important and that should be treated with reverence, and, and we don't even have a fraction of the ethic that they did in, in the first century. These stone uh, vessels are sacred. This is not a peripheral, like which hymnal do we use and what color do we paint the bathroom and the. Ch- this is like a central piece of their religious act. You cannot go to church unless you wash, unless you make sure you're clean, ceremonially speaking, you cannot go to God. And it represents the distance and space and the things that separate us from God. And so not only do they treat that with seriousness, but I mean, God treats it with seriousness. And so what if Jesus wanted to stir up a conversation about that? And then... He puts wine in it. What foot of what Gentile crushed these grapes and just, just ruined these uh, sacred vessels, you know? I can just hear the murmurs of, of religious people. There, there, what is going on here? Wine is one of the strongest connect, uh, symbols in the Hebrew mind to joy. I was reading a commentary of... in in the Jewish Talmud this week where there was a quote that came up about um, the psalm that says joy gladdens the heart and they were saying this line, since the temple was here, there was no joy without meat, but now that the temple is destroyed, there is no joy without wine. Now that just shows you it's not necessarily saying there's no joy without wine. It's it's a reference to Passover. It's a reference to, uh, you know, what that represents. But still, you see the connection between joy and wine very strongly in that quote. What if I told you that these empty jars, being filled up with wine, Could be the beginning of a conversation that Jesus wants to be associated with, uh, critiquing the very thing that separates us and God. Let me put it this way What emotion do you have when you go through your religious rites and rituals, or when you evaluate, if you will, your connection to God? I mean, moving out of the social shame thing, you know, of running out of wine, and moving into like religion. What do you feel when you come to church and when you actually are honest and you say, yep, I need the washing, I am unclean? Because there is a dastardly trick that can be played on all of us in this moment. When we enter into that conversation and say, yeah, here is my unclean and there is nothing that I can do to, to clean it. I'm going to try, but it's really just water. I'm just hoping that this works. And, and the dastardly trick is that to then continue to make this about you. I am, no matter how hard I try, unable to rid myself of this. And we start to hear these lies of like, yep, you are unclean. You will always be unclean. You've been unclean last week. You're unclean this week. You're not pure. You have problems. You have issues. You're never going to fix these. One. No matter how many prayers you do, no matter how many times you come to the the the, the church, no matter how many things that you do right, you're always going to be tainted and flawed. And this is how God sees you. And when he looks at you, he's very frustrated at you. And you're unable to ever do anything about it. What if I told you that Jesus is hinting at something here and saying, you know what I want in that space? I want to fill you to the brim with something else. I want to fill you to the brim with something, uh, with a copious amount of legendary, unbelievably tasting joy. Joy. The thing that reduces all joy from our relationship with God is when we buy into the lie that this is about me and how I can get clean, and how I can do this on my own. But as we fix our eyes on the one who, for the joy set before does Dave hear anymore for the joy set before him, endured the cross, why was it a joy for him? It was a joy because he went and did that not for himself, but for us. The second we make the enduring about us, we lose the joy. Remember what Jesus said, those who seek to save their life will lose it. That's what he's talking about. Making this about you. We lose all kinds of joy, but as we fix our eyes on the one who says, come to me with your sin, and I am faithful, and I am just to forgive you of your sin, and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Are you hearing me? I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I will be your mikvah. I will be your fountain of living water. I will wash you and make you pure and make you clean and fill you up with my joy. As you continue to look at him, And see him for that. You will be filled with a joy that's unexplicable. When people bump into you, they're going to taste it. And they're going to feel it. Where did you get this? They do not know where it came from, but you do. And in this place, you become the sign. Pointing to the significance and the glory of Jesus by telling this world that is so desperate to know, where can I go to get the joy? I I have one more point, a vantage point, but I'm going to ask the band to come back up because it's kind of an extra credit one. And uh, I can say that in good conscience. It's not necessarily written in these verses. And uh, so I'm going to just sort of, you know, talk about a cultural thing here and uh, and then we'll wrap it up. So in the area where this is being done in Israel, there's an inundation of Roman life. Don't think of Israel in the first century as a Jewish place. It's, there's Jewish culture there, but it's a Roman territory. And in Ephesus, where John writes this, it's the same thing. Just 15 miles from where this miracle is done, there is a massive temple in a town called Asclepius, which you can go to to this day, to a guy named Dionysus. Not a peripheral God, this is a a son of Zeus. And Dionysus is the god of harvest and the god of joy, and a big contribution was grapes. And he used the grapes to turn into wine, and so he becomes associated with drinking wine. Part of the ritual of worshiping Dionysus then would be to drink so much that you become in the spirit of Dionysus. Reminds you of that verse in Ephesians, right? Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Okay, so he... um, He then, a part of their ritual, their annual festival, there would be this reference to a fountain that Dionysus invented where water would come out, but it would be wine. And they would turn these urns full of water into wine. A cultural, normal thing, like if I was to say to you, Elf on a Shelf, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) A cultural, normal thing in their world is that there is someone else that gives you the water to wine thing. And we might not have a temple to Dionysus here, so it might not be that relevant to bring up, but I do think that the promise of Dionysus is alive in our day. Drink this and you'll be happy. Drink this and you'll be full of joy. Eat this and you'll be happy. Buy this, get this, fill this, put this in you and you'll be happy. And you'll be satisfied, I promise you. But I think our world knows that the wine is running out from Dionysus. And they need a group of people who are willing to actually make a conscious decision to say, I'm not gonna buy that. I'm not gonna live my life for the idols of our day. And so if you're even a little bit being convicted about idolatry in your life, it's about the things that we try and, and make the most significant in our hearts. And it's time to evaluate, is Jesus that person? That, that is he the God? Or is Dionysus to God? Is Jesus the one who brings me my joy and my happiness and satisfaction and completion? Let's just take a moment and pray through some of this stuff. If there's anybody here, Father, that just needs to know who you are and they feel just like that young couple, vulnerable, exposed, maybe in a shameful situation, I pray that you would reveal your glory to them, reveal your significance to them, be a part of their shame in a way that's removing it from them permanently, and, and meet them there. We believe that you do this And we've seen you do this. You paid for um, our purification. You paid for our ability to be free. And so we believe you for it. Help us to move into that. If there's anyone here who is hearing, uh, hearing me talk about those empty jars and feeling like they're just been empty. It's religious. I'm religious as it gets, but I'm just empty. It's not working there's no joy in my relationship with God, then I pray that you would meet them with this legendary joy that is unexplainable, that just is filling them up to the brim. And this be a new season of wine in their life there's anybody here who is dealing with um, putting their utmost significance into uh, idols or, or things that are lying and vying for their attention that I would pray that Holy Spirit you would just reveal that convict and just let us know where that is and give them the courage to be able to lay down the idol and not to fall for it anymore but to and to lay that down to pick you up as you turn water into wine even yet again. Amen.
2: Time, Holy Spirit.
4: in the name of Jesus
5: shame and idols idols and shame they they tend to go together sometimes especially when our idols are revealed we've got some shame and so idols come out in in many different ways people things, lifestyle and status, political things, religious things, and even expectations of how your marriage is going to be. And that happened to us. Often we found that God, He kind of laughs at our plans and our expectations, and He says, you really want that? I've got something so much better for you.
6: When we first got married, I had a picture in my head of what our family would look like we'd have a few kids a nice house perfect schools i'd be a stay-at-home mom we'd have a perfect marriage and perfect kids well as you can imagine this didn't come true but i did become begin to idolize this picture and it became my identity little did i know that god has so much more for us he slowly had to tear away this idol so that my identity would be in him alone through his grace, he taught me so much about himself. As I watched him break down these idols and my identity, I began to see so many different facets of his character.
5: But leaving behind our idolized marriage, and leaning into what God had for us, that's, that's brought us true joy. Not that we've got it all together, but supporting each other through the trauma and drama of life, there's joy that jesus brings as god led us through lots of different things there's joy on the other side some days it looked like talking through those things some days it was it's been just being present other days it's us just barely holding on some days it's all those things but that's the key it's really never been about us it's not been about us holding on it's It's always been about it's always been about Jesus holding us together. I don't say that in some detached way, but that's what we've learned is really our marriage is not about us. I'm not the glue in our marriage, and Melissa isn't either. Jesus is. He he holds on to us. So the joy we found in marriage is for sure from God. The satisfaction is from Him. The The glory is His and not ours. And despite our Despite our imperfections, He sustains us. Despite me not loving Melissa like I always should, He sustains us. Despite not seeing things clearly, Jesus walks with us to show us the right way.
6: When we look back on our 23 years of marriage, we are struck by God's continual, relentless pursuit of us, both individually and together. We see His calling us to Him, sometimes with a whisper, sometimes He needs to shake us. But every single time, it's for His glory and for our good. We have a passion together to see the marriages of all ages see more of God and experience His true joy together, to be better disciples of Jesus, and thus be able to serve each other better. To know that mundane faithfulness in marriage looks like year after year serving Jesus and then each other as best as we know how. So Crossroads, we invite you to a marriage workshop, March 28th. Come
5: join us. So if you're engaged or you've been married a little bit or a lot of bit, come sign up on the website. You can find all the details there. So Crossroads, receive this blessing today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May you know the creator God, the joy brought by being a disciple of Jesus. And may you experience the Holy Spirit's power to remove shame and crush and wipe out idols for God's glory and your joy. Go in peace. Remember, there is prayer down in front of you.